Deborah was a prophet and a judge who helped settle the despites among the Israelites. One day, Deborah sent for Barak and said to him, The Lord commands you to take 10,000 men and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera with his troops and give him into your hands. But Barak was fearful and said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Deborah, disappointed in Barak's lack of faith, told him that she would go with him. She said, But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah and Barak left together to gather the army. As Deborah said he would, Sisera, after hearing that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, gathered all his men and chariots as well. Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. So Barak led his army towards Sisera, and God allowed them to overtake Sisera and all his chariots. However, Sisera got down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Sisera approached a tent at Jael. Jael came out of her tent to meet Sisera and said, Don't be afraid. I'm thirsty, Sisera told her. So she gave him a drink. <laughs> Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he slept and killed the sleeping man. <laughs> Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera. Jael met him and told him that she would show him the man he was looking for. She took Barak, showed him the man she killed, and Deborah, the, prof the prophet's words, were fulfilled. Well, hey, Grace Chapel, great to be back with you all this morning after uh, a month of kind of visiting some of our campuses and uh, doing some speaking and teaching outside of Grace Chapel. Uh, it's been a good month for me. I trust a good month for you. Uh, thanks to Pastors uh, Ruthie and Adam and Tim, who have been introducing us to some of the fascinating men and women of Scripture this summer. I was watching messages from campuses, and, and I can tell you honestly, I found each one moving, and I found God meeting me throughout the summer as uh, our team opened up God's Word to us. So grateful for that, and grateful we'd be kind of back in the mix today as we meet another human of the Bible, a, a leader named Deborah. And thanks to the kids for uh, introducing us to Deborah and telling the story so vividly and memorably. <laughs> now, this is one of those stories that um, when you read it or hear it, you're tempted to say, is that in the Bible? <laughs> that was, we gave you the PG-13 version of that story, by the way. So I'm glad we have a chance to take a closer look at this fascinating character and this unsettling but powerful story. As we do, we're going to learn some more about the, the journey of faith and, and the life God calls us to and the kind of God He is and what He's doing in this world. And along the way, we're going to learn a little bit about some principles for reading and understanding some of these challenging Old Testament stories. Now, we're going to finish up the series on Humans of the Bible next Sunday. And then we'll do a short series designed to kind of get us ready to go back to school, back to work, back to whatever is waiting for you in September, okay? But that's a month away, so we're not going to think about that right now, okay? We're going to 
enjoy the last few weeks of summer. Well, on a December evening in 1955, after a long day of working at a Montgomery, Alabama department store, a 40-something-year-old woman settled into the seat of the colored-only section of a city bus. A few moments later, when the bus driver came and asked her to give up her seat for a white passenger, she refused. She said afterward, it wasn't that she was too tired to get up. It's just that she was tired of giving in. As the granddaughter of slaves, and having suffered decades of discrimination because of the color of her skin, she decided it was time for someone to do something, for someone to say, this isn't right, and this has to stop. And Rosa Parks' actions that day changed the trajectory of our nation. Her actions galvanized the African-American community in that city, set in motion the bus boycott that a year later led to a Supreme Court decision declaring unconstitutional the segregation of our public transportation system. Not only that, this became a turning point in the civil rights movement and brought to prominence a rising young dynamic clergyman named Martin Luther King Jr. This isn't right. This has to change. I imagine that's how we're all feeling after the news stories of the past 24 hours. Two mass shootings in our country. This isn't right. This has to change, we say. But sometimes we look at the size and scope of the world's problems and we're tempted to say, what difference can one person make? I mean, whether it's gun violence or, or racial injustice or displaced people groups or unplanned and unwanted children or domestic violence or religious persecution, these problems, they seem so large, they seem so complicated. What can one human being do to, do, to affect any kind of real change? And the same question can be asked on a more personal level. Maybe you come from a family that's suffered generations of heartache and, and dysfunction. And you're wondering if there's any way you can possibly change the narrative for yourself and for those that you love. Maybe you're unhappy with, with the atmosphere at your school or in your workplace or, or in your community. But you're just one student. You're one employee. You're one resident. What can you do? What difference can you make? And we can certainly ask the question on a spiritual level as well. Our culture seems to be drifting farther and farther away from, from God. So many people seem so disinterested, so suspicious, so hostile even to Christian faith. What can one church, what can one Christ follower do to open hearts to the goodness and grace of God? It can all be very disheartening. Until we hear the story of one person who did make a difference? A Rosa Parks, an ordinary person, an unlikely person, a seamstress, a wife, 
who by one single act stepped into a moment and changed the trajectory of her nation. Well, today we'd like to look at the story of another woman who in a similar way stepped into her moment and changed the trajectory of her nation. And her name is Deborah. And like the other characters we've been meeting in this series, she is too often overlooked and underestimated in spite of the remarkable impact her life and ministry had on the world. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm wondering how many of us have heard a sermon on Deborah, a whole sermon just on Deborah. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons in my lifetime. I can't remember one sermon focusing just on Deborah. I've heard sermons on Gideon and Samson and all the other characters in the book of Judges, but I can't think of a sermon on Deborah. Now, maybe that's because it comes from a time period that was a dark period in Israel's history. And there are some very uncomfortable and even unsavory moments in these stories, as we just saw. Maybe it has to do with that. Or maybe it has to do with the fact that this is one of the few places in Scripture we find a woman in a leadership position. And we haven't always been sure what to do with that. In fact, if you have heard a sermon on, the, on Deborah, it's probably included some awkward explanations, either about why it was okay for Deborah to serve in this particular situation, or about why we don't find more women leading in other places of the Scripture. So I'm glad we have a chance to, to take a closer look at this story, at this character named Deborah, so that we can learn something about how we can become men and women God can use to change our world, our corner of the world anyway. And along the way, we're going to learn a few things about how we read and understand some of these difficult passages we find in the Old Testament. So there's actually two chapters in the Scripture devoted to Deborah's story. Judges 4 tells the historical account of what happened. And chapter 5 is a song that celebrates what God did in and through her. It's sort of a, we are the champions of the ancient world, that kind of a thing. So we're going to look a little bit at both. But let's begin with the historical account in Judges chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harash of Hagoyim. And because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now this story takes place during a transitional period in Israel's history. It happens after the exodus from Egypt and the settling of the promised land, Moses and then Joshua. And it happens before the time of the monarchy, Saul and David and Solomon. And so during this period of the time, we have people settling into the land of Canaan. They're surrounded by pagan people and influences, and they have no formal leadership structure. And so they fall into this tragic cycle of wandering away from God, inviting hardship and oppression from these surrounding peoples, until they cry out to God for help, and he raises up a deliverer. All this happens over a period of about 300 years, around 1200 B.C., before and after. Now, in this case, it appears that a, that a, a coalition of Canaanite tribes has been harassing the northern tribes of Israel. Under the leadership of this king named Jabin and his general Sisera, 
They were oppressing these tribes. Now we're told they had 900 chariots of iron. That was a terrifying prospect in the ancient world. And we're told that they were cruelly oppressing the Israelites. Now if you want to get a picture and a feeling for what this must have felt like, think of those images we saw of caravans of ISIS fighters, Humvees and armored vehicles, making their way across cities and terrorizing peoples of the Middle East. And you'll get the idea of what was happening here. This went on for 20 years until the people finally cried out to God for help and he raised up a deliverer. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes settled. Now, Deborah is the third of 12 judges we meet in this particular book. And she's the only woman. Now, as you can imagine, in that ancient world, in that stridently patriarchal culture, it was highly unusual for a woman to be in a leadership role like this. And over the years, it has raised problems for those who would say that God's economy does not allow women to serve in leadership roles like this over men. And so down through the years, people have tried to offer explanations about what's going on here. And some have suggested that Deborah wasn't in leading in an official capacity like a king or a governor. She was providing informal leadership over Israel. Now the problem is the text is very clear that, that she's a prophet she is speaking for God to the people, so she's a spiritual leader. It's also clear that, she is, that she's a judge, that she is settling legal and economic disputes for the people, and so she's a political leader. And later on, we're going to find out she's a, a military leader as well. The scripture uses the very same words to describe her leadership as it does all the other male leaders in this time period. So clearly, she is the senior leader in Israel. It's also been argued that Scripture isn't necessarily affirming a woman in leadership, it's simply reporting it. That this is descriptive language, not prescriptive language. Now, that can be a very helpful principle for understanding some portions of the Old Testament, but it doesn't really apply here. Because, we, as we said, chapter 5 celebrates Deborah's leadership and places it in the context of praise and glory to God. There's not a hint here of rebuke or scandal or impropriety in her leadership. Then others have said that Deborah is the exception that proves the rule. That the only reason God used Deborah was because he couldn't find a man to rise up and fill the occasion. Now that raises all kinds of logical and theological questions. The almighty sovereign God unable to raise up one male leader in the people, among the people? Is God willing to violate one of his eternal principles in the sake of efficiency? If it's a violation of God's order for a woman to lead men, then it's always a violation of his order, and it's always wrong. But there's nothing in this text that suggests that there's something wrong with Deborah's leadership. In fact, it's celebrated. In fact, she is without a doubt the most godly, upright, and impactful judge we find in the entire book. So having said all that, the next logical question is, 
Well, then if it's okay for a woman to be leading, then why doesn't it happen more often in the Bible? Well, you're going to have to wait for the answer to that one, okay? We'll get to that in a few minutes. Right now, I want to come back to the story. So, the battle, this confrontation begins to happen. And we're told that, uh, that Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinuam, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So after all these years of oppression, Deborah finally says, this isn't right, this has to stop. And she steps into the moment. But notice, she grounds her action in God's leading. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, she says to her general. Now, 10,000 men may sound like a lot of men, but compared to the hordes of Canaanite warriors, this is a terrible mismatch. Not to mention the fact that the Israelites, remember, are farmers. They're herders. They're not soldiers. They're not trained for battle. Whatever weapons they might have had would have been no match for 900 chariots of iron and who knows what other weapons the Canaanites had. But Deborah does have a strategy. She will lure the enemy into the river valley so that the, the Israelites can ambush them from high up in the hills. But even with that, her general Barak, the five-star general, no doubt, is reluctant to go up against the Canaanite military machine. And so he says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. That's hard to know exactly what's happening here, but Barak's response is less than inspiring. <laughs> For one thing, it borders on insubordination. I've never been in the service, but I'm I don't think you're allowed to say to your commanding officer, if you don't go, I'm not going. <laughs> I don't think it works that way. But for a bigger thing, it reveals a lack of faith on Barak's part. He's not willing to trust God to grant him and his people a victory over this enemy. And so Deborah rebukes him, agrees to go with him, tells him that a woman will get the glory for the victory, not him. Well, the battle unfolds, and according to plan, Sisera and his armies follow the, the Israel army into the Kishon River Valley. Now, that valley, when it was dry, was a wonderful battleground for chariots of iron. But when it was wet, when it was flooded, it became a quagmire. And according to Judges chapter 5, at just the right moment, God sends a thunderstorm to the river valley. The earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. Seeing this happening, Deborah recognizes the hand of God and she tells her, her general, go. 
Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera with all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. With their chariots and horses bogged down in the mud and trapped by the narrowing walls of the valley, the Canaanite forces are sitting ducks for the more mobile and lightly armed Israelites who come swooping down upon them from the hills, trapping them in the valley and routing them completely. Turns out Deborah's a pretty good commander-in-chief too. But like all good war stories, it's not over yet. Sisera, the villain, escapes. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket, opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Well, exhausted, Sisera finds shelter in a Canaanite tent. What he doesn't know is that the Kenite tribe is also tired of the oppression and is sympathetic to the cause of the Israelites. So this savvy woman named Jael lures Sisera into the tent with the promise of protection and literally tucks him in with a warm glass of milk. <laughs> and then Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. As you notice, we didn't have the children act out that particular <laughs> moment in this story. They were pretty intrigued, though. As, as Tim pointed out last week, the Old Testament can be pretty gritty and a bit unsettling at points. I mean, this is a violent act with more than a hint of treachery and deception. Does God approve of this sort of thing? Well, a couple things are worth pointing out. For one thing, Sisera was basically a terrorist. I don't remember too many people objecting when Osama bin Laden was taken out in a nighttime raid on his compound. Sisera was likely responsible for far more deaths than bin Laden was. And as for the mode of execution, while it sounds brutal, is it any less violent than a bullet from a Navy SEAL's gun? And what else was she supposed to use? I like the way one commentator dryly puts it. Women normally did the work of setting up tents, so JL knew how to handle her tools. I guess so. <laughs> Who needs a Navy SEAL when you got a woman with a mallet, right? I mean. <laughs> a third thing to point out is that this is the way war worked in the ancient world. Either you wiped them out or they wiped you out. And you really hadn't conquered your enemy until you had killed their king. And as it turns out, the victory that day and the execution of Sisera broke the back of the Canaanite coalition. And they would never again threaten the people of Israel in this way again. Chapter 4 ends with this declaration. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the Israelites. 
God did it. But humanly speaking, it wouldn't have happened without Deborah. Humanly speaking, it wouldn't have happened without someone willing to say, this isn't right, this has to stop. It wouldn't happen without someone believing that God was on the move and that he was waiting for someone to step into the moment, and that someone was Deborah. What difference can one person make? Quite a bit, it turns out, especially when God is in it. Is something happening in your world that isn't right, that has to stop? Is God calling to your attention something in your family, in your neighborhood, in your friendship circle, in your school or workplace or community or your church? Something that, that needs to change. And could he be asking you to be the one to step into that moment? Where do you find the wisdom and the courage and the strength to do something like that? You're going to have to wait for the answer for a few more minutes. Because before we get to that, I'd like to take a step back for a minute and offer us a little bit of help in how we read and interpret some of these difficult passages of the Old Testament. Passages that are often difficult to reconcile with, with our understanding of, with our, more, our modern sensibilities about right and wrong and, and with the message of the New Testament. For instance, what do we do with all the violence and the bloodshed and the warfare that we, that we read about in the Old Testament? And if we believe that Scripture affirms women as leaders, as many of us do, why don't we find more women leading in the scriptures and even in the New Testament. So let me share with you a simple diagram that, uh, that I found very helpful in understanding all these things. It's actually a diagram that my son Mark shared with me when we were doing some teaching this summer uh, up at Camp of the Woods and he actually learned it from a professor of his at Denver Seminary. So it's a simple chart, a simple, simple graph that has a vertical axis that represents what we'll call God's will and then a horizontal axis that represents time. And we'll divide that into kind of uh, Old Testament time and New Testament time. The Bible begins, human history begins in Genesis 1 and 2 in a place called Eden where God's will is done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. Everything's the way it's meant to be. The first man and woman live in, in harmony with each other and with God and with the world around them. In chapter 3, they fall. They decide that they're not interested in God's will and God's ways. They want to do things their way. And so they bring ruin to corruption, to all of creation and to every aspect of the human experience. At the end of the Bible... The end of human history, Revelation 21 and 22, we get a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. We're told that God is someday going to put everything right, restore heaven and earth to its original splendor. So from here until here, God is working in human history to move humanity forward and upward toward his good and eternal purposes. 
And so the arc of human history, the trajectory of human history, goes something like this. A gradual movement forward and upward towards God's purposes that, that, that gets stronger and moves a little more quickly in the New Testament than it did in the Old Testament. God meets us where we are. He meets humanity where we are in our cultural, moral, philosophical, cultural context. He meets us there, reveals himself and his ways, moving us towards a fuller understanding of who he is and how he wants us to live. So let me give you some examples. Let's take the problem of violence that we find in the Scripture. If we go back to the early books of the Bible, the, the, the book of uh, the Torah, the law, we find a law here that says, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, we look back on that law from our 21st century perspective, and it sounds downright barbaric. But if you were looking at that law from this vantage point, from a chaotic, disordered, brutally violent world, Eye for an eye was a whole lot better than you knock out my tooth, I take off your head. Because that's how the world was working. God is moving people towards a more reasonable system of justice and fairness. But it's not where he wanted us to land. So a little later, in the book of Proverbs, we find a proverb that says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Well, that's an improvement over eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But it's still not where God ultimately wants us to be. We finally get to the words of Jesus and we're told to turn the other cheek. We're told to actually love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so you see there's this movement, what one scholar calls a redemptive movement in history as God reveals his ways to us. Let me show it to you again in the example of women serving in leadership roles. You don't find a lot of it in the Old Testament. But interestingly, we meet a woman named Miriam all the way back in the time of Moses, Moses' sister, who actually assists Moses and Aaron in leading the people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. A little further along, we come to a woman named Deborah, who actually is serving as the senior leader of God's people. Further along, we find a woman named Ruth. We find a queen named Esther, who, who become role models for God's people, who effect change in their time, and who get books of the Bible named after them. But then we get to the New Testament and things really start to pick up. God chooses a young, unmarried woman to be the first place he begins and sets in motion his redemptive mission to the, to the world in sending his son, Mary. Jesus, we find, invites women and men, women, many women, to actually study with him, to be his followers, to be his disciples, and then he entrusts them with the news of his resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, we will learn that the, the Holy Spirit falls on both men and women who dream dreams and, and pray prayers and prophesy, just like Joel had predicted long ago. As the church begins to expand, we find women like, like uh, Priscilla and Lydia and Phoebe who play leading roles in the expansion of the church. Paul goes on to write at some point that, that in Christ, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, all one, all equal. And by the time we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we're told that all of God's servants, men and women, live and reign with him forever and ever. So once again, you see this redemptive movement forward and upward towards better things. I find that incredibly helpful in understanding 
the way how to, how to read the Old Testament and what God is doing in history. He reveals himself over time in ever-increasing ways, moving us towards the people and the world that he would ultimately have us to be. That's especially helpful when you come to passages that deal with violence and gender and human dignity. Interesting little sidelight. I told you Mark and I were teaching this up at camp. So I taught, he taught, we went back and forth. At the end of the session, you know how people often come forward to talk to the speaker? Well, I have like two or three people talking to me. He's got like 25 (laughs) talking to him about the chart. So it's a pretty humbling and wonderful moment for a father. But anyway, it's a very helpful little chart. God is moving humanity towards better things so that we in this world might become all he meant us to be. And he does it when human beings, people like you and me and Deborah and Rosa, step into moments. And that's the primary lesson of today and and the message I'd like to leave you with. Is God asking you, in some small but significant way, to change the trajectory of your family or your neighborhood or your church or your workplace or your school or your community or your friendship circle? I mean, we're not judges or prophets Most of us, we're not kings and governors. But we all have influence in our corner of the world, an opportunity to affect change. Where do we find the courage and the wisdom to do that? The same place Deborah found it, in God, through faith in God. And that's where where Judges chapter 5 takes us in this great song of celebration. Deborah actually wrote the song and sung it, so she's a musician too. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. Deborah makes it clear that God gets the glory for this victory, but she also makes it clear that he accomplishes that victory through people. People beginning with herself who are willing to believe that God is on the move, who are willing to follow him and step into a moment, trusting him to provide all that they need to do whatever he calls them to do. This is in contrast to Barak, who wouldn't believe that God could give him victory over his enemies. Deborah believed that God was good and powerful and just. She believed that, that, that he was waiting for one person, one human being to step into the moment, and she wanted to be that person. So it turns out, one person really can make a difference in the world when by faith we step into a situation that God wants changed. One person really can make a difference when, they, when by faith they step into a situation that God wants changed. And interestingly, it was faith that prompted Rosa Parks to take her stand or her seat. She said, it was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down. I was fortunate God provided me with the strength I needed at the precise precise time when conditions were ripe for change. I am thankful to him every day that he gave me strength not to move. In Rose's situation, just as in Deborah's, when one person stepped up or sat down, God met them in that moment. 
raised up others who would join the cause, change the hearts of people, and change the course of a nation. And I believe that God can and will do a similar thing in the corners of the world in which you and I find ourselves, things and places and relationships that need to be changed. Is there something God wants you to step into? Maybe it's time for you or for the church to say or do something about gun violence or about racial hatred or about political acrimony or about all the things that are happening that are not right in our country or in the world. Maybe it's time. All you have to do is just to believe that, that he can and will do something, that he can raise up others, he can unleash the forces of nature, he can change the hearts of people and institutions and even governments. All he asks for is a person willing to believe that and step into the moment. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of our grassroots ministry here at Grace Chapel, ministries to, to refugees and to uh, battling uh, human trafficking, dealing with foster and adoptive care, sanctity of life issues. All those ministries started and led by lay people, men and women here at Grace, who said, someone has to do something. I'm thinking of Hope for the Children of Haiti, a, a ministry in Haiti that we've supported for 30-some years now. It was started by a woman here at Grace Chapel, a nutritionist, who said, someone needs to do something to provide food and care for orphans in Haiti, and why not me? I'm thinking of Hagar's sisters, a ministry that, that comes alongside women and families suffering from domestic violence. It began with a woman here at Grace who said, this isn't right, something has to be done. I'm thinking of our shine ministry the, to, to special needs families when, when someone, a, lay, a, a woman in our church said, we can do better coming alongside and ministering to and with families with special needs. I'm thinking of all of us here at Grace Chapel who week by week go out into the world and have opportunities to do something good in the world, to affect change in our corner of the world. And the promise here is that one person really can make a difference when by faith we step into a situation that God wants changed. Now the ultimate demonstration of this truth is found in the ultimate deliverer Jesus Christ, who himself became human, made of flesh and blood just like us. He became human to show us a better way to change the world, not with the power of the sword, but with the power of love. Jesus conquered not by driving a stake through his enemy's skull. Jesus conquered evil and injustice by allowing himself to be staked to the ground on a place called the skull. And by that act, he said, this isn't right. Sin and death and evil and injustice, this isn't right, and it stops here. And with that victory, he changed the trajectory of the human race and of every human being who puts their faith in him. Before you can change the world, you have to be changed. If you have never received the life-changing love of God to forgive you from your past, to set you free, to become the person God meant you to be, to fill you with his Holy Spirit, then that's your first step on your journey to being a world changer. If you've already experienced that love, if you're already on the way, 
then consider today if God might be asking you to step into some situation by faith and change the world. Let's pray for a moment. We thank you, Lord, for hearing us when we turn to you, for meeting us where we are, even on this particular day, with bad news ringing in our hearts and minds and yet the promise of better days with your help and your grace. Thank you that you're a God who meets us and moves us in better directions. We pray that you meet us here today. And in particular, you meet us now as we gather around your table, as we allow ourselves a few moments to consider your great act of love for us, your coming into the world, your life, death, your resurrection, and the promise and the hope it brings to us. Make these moments meaningful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.